Hello and welcome back to another episode of Holistic Healers. For those who are new, welcome to the show. My name is Morgan Rutkowski and I am the host. For returners, thank you again for being here, subscribing, following along. It's good to have you back. Uh, today, I invited a guest who helps her clients improve their pain through weight loss strategies and interventional pain procedures. She is a board-certified nurse practitioner and has helped thousands of patients, so she really knows her stuff. Uh, so I want to welcome Jennifer Porock. Hey, thanks for having me. Why don't you start off telling us just a little about yourself and what brings you on to the show today? Awesome. Well, I'm um, Jennifer Torok, as Morgan said. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner, and currently I work in a comprehensive spine clinic. Um, and my primary role there is to help patients with their weight and their pain, uh, and just going about it using a multidisciplinary approach. So some patients come to see me because they need to lose weight to go to surgery. Some patients want to lose weight to avoid surgery, and some patients have like autoimmune things or rheumatoid arthritis, and they know that if they change um, habits and food intake, then maybe their pain would improve. And when you mention just chronic pain or pain in general, what do you mean by that? Because I really don't know anything about it, so I definitely want to learn more. So acute pain, you know, you sprain your ankle, that pain usually resolves itself within a few weeks, maybe with some minimal like ice rest elevation, right? So that's our acute pain. Chronic pain is when the pain sticks around for longer than three months, uh, and it can involve multi-systems or it can just be a single system. So maybe it's just, um, maybe it's back pain or it's neck pain or it's joint pain or muscle pain can be chronic as well. So lasting longer than three months, um, and it doesn't really matter if the pain is improving, it just matters if it's constant. So it gets a chronic pain diagnosis as soon as it's been present for longer than three months. Uh, yeah, I'm curious if it's like, is it usually injuries that come about with chronic pain or is it just kind of happen out of nowhere? Yeah. So chronic pain is really common when we think about our elderly patients or elderly people that we, you know, like our grandparents, you know, we know that they get stiff when they walk, they get a little groany when they go to stand up. Um, and so, you know, chronic pain used to be just kind of something we thought that happened really as we age. But what we've learned as, you know, pain science has really developed is that, you know, we even understand that newborns have pain. We didn't even think newborns experience pain the same way, but chronic pain can come at any age. And unfortunately it's afflicting more and more young people. Um, so unfortunately we're seeing a lot more, you know, the younger population, we generally see people over the age of 18, but um, we do have some underage, under 18 patients who will come see us if they're a special case. But um, for, for most of us, it, it can be, you know, hereditary. Um, we all will develop some sort of arthritis as we age. We just know that that's a given factor. We degenerate our joints over time. Even if we're kind to ourselves, we still end up with that degenerative process. And that starts anywhere between 30 and 40 for most people. That can be accelerated if you do have a trauma of some kind. And a trauma can be, um, you know, you, you broke your leg when you were, I don't know, 15, and you might have arthritis in that area at, that it, you experience more as you get older. Um, but really, chronic pain can come in any fashion, really, for any reason. Sometimes we even think it comes out of like a viral process or even just um, 
like an autoimmune disorder can bring on chronic pain. So it doesn't always come with age, unfortunately. Um, a lot of trauma though. We do see a lot of people following car accidents, um, you know, work-related accidents, just, and then there's people who just don't do anything. They pick up a piece of paper off the floor and they hurt their back and it, you know, and then it becomes chronic. So unfortunately it's pretty easy to develop it. Yeah, just being an athlete, I guess, former athlete myself, I was like, I feel like I went through a lot of chronic pain and I kind of just ignored it. Um, do you get people like that who have like not known they've had pain for so long? Yeah, I think there's, a, you know, depending on our personalities, too, I think that plays into it a little bit. But then and, and maybe even how you're raised, you know, some of us are taught to kind of, you know, buck up and, <laughs> and deal with it. Right. If you want to continue to play soccer and your knees hurt, you have to figure out how to ice them afterwards or use some anti-inflammatories or take rest during the off season. So I think we know it's there. I think it's how how maybe we perceive it or I don't know. You know, that's an interesting question. Um but we do, there's tons of people who ignore it and, or think it's just how it's going to be, or, you know, they still have to go to work every day. So they can't acknowledge that they have a backache. They can't acknowledge they have migraines or, or they just work through them or people miss work or they become unemployed because they can't work. And so they might know it's there, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're treating it. Yeah. And you mentioned you worked at a spinal clinic, or I guess I read that about you. Um, what do you work on with clients when they do see you? Yeah, so we, we, it's a comprehensive spine clinic. So we offer um, interventional pain procedures, um, medications, and then we also work with um, orthospine surgeons. So the goal is generally when a patient comes to see us is we figure out if this is acute pain or chronic pain, what they've tried and what they haven't tried. And we always start, you know, with, um, you know, your basic things. We want you to do, you know, rest and activity modification. We want you to have a trial, some Tylenol and some ibuprofen. And if you haven't done some physical therapy, massage therapy, chiropractic care, something like that, then we put those people on that path. Because we know if we intervene early in acute pain, we can hopefully prevent it from becoming chronic. So the goal is early management so that it doesn't, you know, have to, the patient doesn't have to deal with it for, you know, for their whole life, hopefully. Um, so if they have interventional pain procedures that are, you know, ineffective or not effective any longer, then they'll meet with a surgeon and a surgeon can decide if they have a diagnosis that can improve with surgery. Um, but we do know that, you know, once you've had one spine surgery, you often have more than one spine surgery just because of adjacent segment degeneration. So we want to delay surgery for as long as possible. Um, and some patients think that if they could just lose 10 pounds, the weight on their back would feel better or the weight on their knees would feel better. And there are some, there are surgeon, well, and there should be, there's, you know, a surgical protocol that says, you know, patients with a BMI less than 35 are optimal surgical candidates for many reasons. One, we know their blood sugars are probably more regulated. Um, we also know that they're not gonna put added strain on surgical sites. We know that their recovery, it will just be smoother. So if they need to go to surgery, they may be sent to me so that I can work on their pain and their weight um, while they're getting ready to go to surgery. If you're gonna have a knee replacement, it's, it's 35 or less BMI. And so a lot of times patients will go in to see a provider and they'll say to the patient, you need a total knee replacement, but you have to have a BMI at less than 35. And if they're sitting at 45, 
pay line of throw their hands up and go, and if I could be at BMI of 35, I would already be there. So they get frustrated because they don't have anybody to help them. And as you know, there's just a lot of information out there. This worked for me, try this, you know, exercise more, eat less. And that's just, it's really not good advice. Um, and so I got obesity medicine certified to do this position one, because I had my own weight journey. So it was important for me because the things that had worked when I was younger weren't working any longer. And so, you know, there, again, I'm the same. I had all this information coming at me and it wasn't working. So I went back to science to see if I could figure out what is going on under the, the whole process of, you know, weight gain um, and inability to lose it or keep it off. And the science really helped make that an easier journey for me. So then now I get to share that information with our our patients and then also coach, you know, um, in my own business for weight and pain issues as well. Like I said, really science driven. So we don't recommend things that don't have a lot of good data behind them. So they're really rooted in science. So that's one of the reasons why we like that. So the other thing that happens when we're working on weight is a lot of the same things I recommend for weight improve pain. So if I'm telling you that you need to eat you know, food the way nature intended for us to eat it, the way it's grown, harvested, raised, and brought to the market, then that's going to help you with your weight, but it's also going to help you with your pain because you're eliminating added sugars and processed foods. And so you can see joint pain get better. Um, if you're going to lose weight, you need to drink at least 80 ounces of water as long as you're not on water restrictions because the body needs that water to be able to actually break down the fat to be able to wash it from your body. And also when we drink enough water, our muscles are hydrated, so they're no longer painful. Our disc spaces in our spine and our joints um, are cushioned by water. So if we're adequately hydrated, we decrease joint and back pain as well. So those are just two examples of water in, and nutrition. Um, I, I don't, don't know any of yeah. that. <laughs> I was just sitting there almost in awe. Like, I feel like I should be taking notes. So I remember those because I'm like, I, I'm definitely someone that's like, I should drink more water. And then I will like wake when I'm thinking of like a recovery after a workout, like I would imagine even like not hydrating very well can impact how much pain you have the next day. Sure. Muscle recovery. You bet if you're dehydrated muscles, the muscles, I, I call them, I say, tell patients that your muscles are crying in pain because dehydration leads to cell death. And so oh. it's true, right? So your cells are crying out. So sweating is what do we say? Fat cells crying or something like that. So it's kind of the, I don't know, the same thing, but. <laughs> so it sounded like you have had your own personal experience with weight loss. Um, would you mind sharing a little about that? Sure. Um, you know, after puberty, it seemed like, um, it was always kind of on, I wasn't an athlete in high school. So, you know, and I didn't really grow up in a family that did a lot of like sports or activities, you know, so, um, it, it really had to just be moderated in the kitchen. Um, and then as a mom, you know, three boys, three pregnancies, and then as you get closer to menopause, unfortunately, it just <laughs> continues to get more, more challenging. Um, but I would say in the last, you know, maybe two years, I probably could call myself weight stable and I had never been able to call myself weight stable. So it's always a journey, right? So I'm always going to have to be mindful of my weight because if I'm not mindful before I know it, 20 pounds creeps back on 30 pounds creeps back on. So if you can intervene at a five pound change versus a 10 pound change, it does, it is easier. And then I would also highly recommend finding someone who is obesity medicine certified or has a great knowledge when it comes to weight loss, because 
we know it's not calories in calories out. And especially if you're a pain patient, because you can't exercise like you could when you were 20. So if you go to the gym and burn, you know, 500 calories, that's great. But my patients can come to me with a walker or a wheelchair or crutches, and they don't want to hear I have to, that they have to exercise. So really our war on weight is one in the kitchen. It really has to be the basis of nutrition um, and understanding, you know, the pathophysiology of underlying what insulin resistance is and how do we manage that and how do we perfect sleep so that we can lose weight. Because if you're getting less than six hours of sleep, you are likely not going to lose weight because the magic number, it seems, for weight loss is between seven and nine hours a night. And that's restful sleep, not just being in your bed. So yeah, and I'd imagine the mental health implications of that too. Like, especially if you have past trauma or like you were saying, eating in the kitchen, like if you have some sort of eating disorder, I've been diagnosed with that. I, I would imagine that would make it 10 times harder to lose weight or reduce pain. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but it is definitely a process. And and so it'll, you, I think we just always have to be, you know, very mindful of, you know, if you have that journey that just because someone maybe has lost a hundred pounds, that it, their journey's not over. It sticks with them. So. Mm-hmm. so I'm curious then with your experience um, and kind of even with what you went through, you mentioned BMI and from what I've heard about BMI, and you can again, correct me if I'm wrong, there is a lot of controversy behind that. So I was wondering if you could speak to that, if you know anything about it. Yeah. Is it so body mass in- <laughs> Yeah, body mass index is your height and weight and um, put into a little um, algorithm and it tells you where you sit. And a lot of people hate it because if you know you're big boned or you're older or you're female or you have a different um, heritage, you know, so all these things can definitely play into into that. What I tell people is that we use it as just a simple number. It's a marker, right? So it gives us an idea of general health, but it's not perfect by any means. Um, you know, because if you've got a bodybuilder who is, you know, 5%, you know, body fat, and yet there's a big mass of person who's not very tall, that BMI is going to be skewed, but we have to have some sort of a way to figure out what your health risk is. And so generally speaking, you know, you may not, I mean, we may sit in overweight, range of a BMI and be very healthy, have great cholesterol, have great blood pressure, don't have any um, extraordinary pain, you know, feel happy, healthy, all the things. So that, that test for you is probably not perfect, right? But we know that when your BMI is above 35, we still are going to run the risk of type two diabetes. We're going to run the risk of heart disease. We're going to run the risk of joint degeneration at a faster rate. Um, so unfortunately, even though it's not a perfect system, it still does give us, you know, and everybody gets to make a decision, right? If you're the surgeon and you look at a patient and they have chronic health issues like diabetes and hypertension, and they've had cardiac stents and their BMI is 45, it's very different than if you have a patient who's never been diagnosed or ever had any heart disease and their BMI is at 38. Maybe you take that person who's above 35 to surgery because their risk panel is less. So it's a way to stratis, just put a, you know, stratify, you know, the risk, so to speak, of who is going to do well post-surgery and who isn't. Because the goal of surgery is to do better, yeah. not worse. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard so much about the BMI, but I think you're right. Like, it does give you a starting point. And 
maybe you're just meeting with a doctor or someone like you and it gives you a little glimpse into their history, their medical history, where they are, and then they can kind of fill in the blanks from there. For sure. So I would imagine then, like, if someone's coming to you, is it a last resort or is this their first option? Who do you typically see? Like, where are they in their mm-hmm. journey? Yeah, both. Um, uh, both. You know, there's people who don't want to have to have back surgery or don't want to have to have knee replacement or they just have struggled with their weight and they don't feel good about it. Right. It's hard to move. It's hard to do things. Their self-esteem is, you know, hurting. And, um, and so they'll, some people will come see me. Some people have tried, I don't know, countless diets, countless, you know, different things. And they come in kind of as a, I'll try one more time thing. And then there's people that it's a, it may be a last resort. I mean, some of the most motivated patients I have are the ones that that feel that back surgery will relieve their pain. And if they have to get healthy to do it, they understand that we're telling them they're higher risk, but they say, our surgeons are able to say, but go see Jen. And then as soon as we're getting, you know, traction, you know, we're getting closer to the BMI that we want, she'll send you back to us and we'll reevaluate whether, you know, your candidacy for surgery is better. A lot of times I hear from patients, I'm going to wait on the knee replacement once they've lost 25 pounds or 30 pounds or, you know, five to 10% of your body weight, depending on where you start can be very significant. I usually start telling people to watch, like if they're on blood pressure medicine, if they've lost five to 10% of their body weight, their blood pressure is going to lower. So we have to then go back to their primaries and adjust their blood pressure medicines and things like that. So we get glimpses of improvement. And so even if the pain isn't improving, some of the other stuff starts improving and that is motivation for patients to continue. And in obesity medicine, we do have the option of using medicines to help because some medicines are helpful, but I can tell you that that this works whether you use medication or not, because some of my patients are too high risk to be using more medicine because they, they come to me and they wanna get off their medicines. They're like, well, I don't wanna go on more medicine. So we can do it either way. So sometimes, you know, medicine is, is a very good choice and sometimes it isn't. So I really let the patient kind of tell me to what, what they would like to try because some patients are like, I just need help and I wanna do whatever I can to make this easier. And so some of those, we might look at the other health things and say, can we better you know, manage your insulin resistance and use something like metformin, which is a pretty you know, benign drug, doesn't have a lot of side effects, but again, it's still a medication with risks. So um, some patients are like, I absolutely wanna give this a try. And if I do great, I don't wanna use medicine. And so we get started and it's, it's, it's not surprising to me, um, the patients that do well without medicine. Okay. So how often are you not prescribing medications? Like, is there a lot of people that are like, no to medications that you see? What's that like? No, I don't think there's a, I don't, I wouldn't say, I would say it goes kind of both ways. I mean, I think I approach it very open-minded with them. I say, these are some things we can do, but they're not required, but I want them to know their options ahead of time, because the last thing I want is for them to feel like they're not going to be successful. And I don't know if there's a placebo effect sometimes when we use a medicine, even if it's not an appetite suppressant or something like that. But again, it may be a medicine, maybe they're already on a medicine Mm -hmm. or maybe they're on a medicine that's causing weight gain. And so if I can identify that and they can go back and speak to their psychiatrist or their primary care physician, maybe get a medication adjustment, trying a different brand or a different type or going at it a different way, then why wouldn't we, you know? 
Is there medications that you see pretty regularly that do cause weight gain? Unfortunately, yes. Some of the ones that we use in pain actually cause weight gain, you know, so some of the nerve, um, you know, medicines that we use can cause weight gain. Um, some of the um, like antidepressant type medications um, can cause weight gain. But again, these are all things that need to be balanced, right? Because if you can't, if you're too depressed to move, you're not going to be healthier either. So it is definitely a, a balancing act between you know, using the medicine they need to be healthy and using medicine that's not going to help them gain weight. But again, something that I can point out and say, the next time you see your cardiologist, could you ask them to maybe try this medicine versus this medicine? So not that I would go in and start changing them unless the primary has asked me to change their medicines, which sometimes I'll get a note that says if there's medication adjustments, just, you know, do them and then let me know. And I'm happy to do that as well. But again, you know, it's being able to identify those things that are going to make it harder for someone to be successful and trying to fix those things so that once the weight does come off, it's able to stay off easier as well. No, I it's so counterintuitive. I think <laughs> like I feel like if a medication is supposed to, you know, whether make your mental health better or reduce chronic pain and we're talking about, you know, also reducing our weight like having a medication that would exacerbate that and make us gain weight it's so ironic that it would do that but I guess that's the medicines out there right and unfortunately pharmaceuticals we know that you know if you get on medicines then sometimes you need more medicine to treat the side effects from the other medicines so it is it's definitely a double-edged sword but you know modern medicine has made us obviously be able to live much longer and so there's definitely benefit and the other thing about that is if you have a provider who is weight aware, they may say to you, these are your choices. This one is weight neutral. This one is probably weight gain potential. This one shouldn't affect your weight and give you the option or at least have you be knowledgeable before they jump in and start using a medicine. Because, you know, if you're trying to, let's just use mental health for an example, you're trying to get you know, healthier mentally, but then you start gaining weight and then your self-esteem takes another hit. And then, you know, so it's, it can definitely circle the drain and that's not what we want. So I think having an open discussion is part of the important thing. And you can say, I think this is the best medicine for you because of your situation, but it may cause weight gain. So if you start gaining weight, let's talk about what we can do to help you not gain more weight or something like that, because some medicines, we don't have another choice. That's it. That's the one that goes. That's the one that works. That's going to help them recover and hopefully long-term care, it's going to be the best option for them. Absolutely. So when a client comes to see you and, cause I know you talked a little about like motivation. Um, and that's a lot of the work that I do with clients myself is like the motivation to change. Cause I have forensics clients that come in on probation, right. Coming out of the hospitals and they're like, I don't need to do anything. Like I don't have to do anything. I'm just kind of here to mark my days. Um, what is your process to kind of motivate clients or to help them see the change that they quote should be making? How do you get mm. that internal fire? <laughs> yeah. The motivational interviewing. Um, yes. <laughs> I, I think we are born <laughs> cheerleaders to be truthful. <laughs> I really do. Because even, even if I don't believe it, you're going to think I believe it in a good way, not in a bad way. Like I know how hard it is to lose weight. Been there. I am there. I but and I say that. And those are the things I say. Like I'm not, I'm not gonna minimize how difficult this is for you. 
but I know you can do it. And I'm going to, we'll prove together that you can do it. And if you hit a roadblock or an obstacle, we'll figure out a way around it. And that's one of the nice things about being able to work with people one-on-one is because like take Weight Watchers, for example, great programs, help lots of people lose weight and keep it off. Um, But it's not individualized to each person. And so if you're in Weight Watchers and you've lost 50 pounds, but now you have knee pain because you twisted your knee on a hike trying to be healthy, they don't modify you for lack of activity. So what was working before your injury is probably no longer going to work or needs to be modified in some way. So if we're working together and something changes or we realize it's a roadblock, holidays, you know, summer barbecues, um, birthday parties, you know, family functions, you know, all the things that we associate food with, I'll help you work through that so that then the next time that obstacle comes up, it's not so difficult because you already know what you're going to do. You already have a plan and being prepared really is how you can keep going forward if you understand what to do for it. So um, I don't know. And again, I, I cheer people on and, and I tell them upfront in the very beginning that, you know, weight loss with me is going to be slower than you're going to like. And I'm sorry for that, but I don't want you on a diet. I don't want you counting calories your whole life. I don't want you denying yourself everything that's good in this world for the rest of your life. This has to be lifestyle. These have to be things that can, that can be done long-term. So let's say, for example, I have a patient who's down 30 pounds and, and um, I will ask a question. Well, my favorite question is what's been hard. What's been easy? Because if something's easy in their mind, I don't want to talk about it. Right. It's easy right? Perfect. You've got water down. That's not a problem for you. But maybe what has been hard is that your coworker brings chocolate to work and puts it in a bowl for everyone to eat. So now we're going to talk about what to do about that chocolate bowl. And because that's hard. And if it's easy, I don't want to spend any time on it. So every time they come to me, we talk about them. It's really where they are. And we try to solve those things. Um, And we also don't talk about weight goals. I don't, I don't ask people, what do they want to be? That's not anything I have a conversation about. And I actually never bring it up. And I never ask the question because health isn't a number. And if I honestly ask people, they're going to want to be what they weighed at 20, if they were at their best in their twenties. Right. Um, And and it might not be realistic, Mm -hmm. you know, and we might, we might get down 50 pounds and they may, I feel great. I don't want to lose anymore. Perfect. Now that is that exactly where they would have been? No, they probably would have wanted to go 75, but if you can maintain 50 pounds and 75 is going to be difficult, wouldn't it be better to stay weight stable and not have the emotional pieces that go along with continued weight gain, reloss, weight gain, reloss. And so we, those are the kind of things that we, we talk about is, and then what do we do about weight maintenance? You know, when we get there, what are we going to do? So I don't have those conversations until we get there. Mm-hmm. So it's just very individualized, which is, I think my favorite part about what I do is that each person is so different and each person has, you know, unique things that need to be addressed. So, yeah. And I like that approach too, just like meeting the client where they're at and not having this these conversations about I don't want to say an unrealistic expectation but having this uh number that really doesn't mean anything but more tapping into how do you feel yeah listening to our bodies is something that we don't do very well um a good example of not listening to your body is you know everybody is kind of 
what, from a young age, you know, our mom has told us we needed to eat breakfast because it was the most important meal of the day. Well, how many people wake up not hungry? So many people wake up not hungry. And why aren't we allowing our bodies to tell us what our body needs? And so if we're not hungry, why don't we take advantage of not being hungry and delaying breakfast until we are hungry? And so I'll call them the first, second, and third meal of the day. I don't call them breakfast, lunch, and dinner because their dinner might be their second meal of the day because they eat their big meal at their second meal, which might be three o'clock or five o'clock. I don't know. And if you're shift working, that's a whole nother, you know, issue. And some of our older populations get up way earlier um, and go to bed way, go to bed way earlier, get up way earlier, go, you know, so again, having a rigid rule is not a good rule, right? So it, I think listening is really important. The other thing I find that we struggle with is, um, you know, if you put people on diet foods or you restrict their food, they don't feel like a normal person. They don't get to sit at the dinner table with their family and have the same foods. And, you know, being a, a mom who always worked with busy kids that had sports and, you know, going all the time, dinner was maybe the one time that we all connected. Mm -hmm. You know, and so mealtime is super important, but it doesn't have to just be dinner. So we talk about, you know, is that important meal going to be the first meal of the day or, you know, or if at dinner time, because we want our kids to grow up thinking, or, you know, well, we hope anyways, that was my hope is that, you know, them seeing a healthy mom and not a mom that struggles, you know, so, and honestly, healthy moms have healthy kids, right? So the, if you're, so we often just put ourselves second, but if we were putting ourselves first in some ways, our kids are going to benefit from that too. So I think there's, again, lots of different caveats that come with weight loss too. But yeah, yeah so. the people you surround yourself with, right? The lifestyle that you have, if you have kids or not, I personally don't have kids, but yeah, all that stuff can um, impact when you're eating, how often you're eating. Um, I didn't even, it's so weird because when I, when I hear of weight loss strategies or just pain management, when they talk about nutrition, it's always like eat three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I know a ton of people that don't eat breakfast or don't eat lunch because they're just not hungry. Um, and I always kind of thought, oh, you know, maybe it's like stress related and it's like your body's digestion is, you know, preoccupied with something else. But I could see that alternative perspective. It's like, maybe they're just not hungry. And that's okay. Yes. And some days you're more hungry than others, right? So if you're having a, I call them hungry days, if you're having a hungry day, then you're going to eat more calories. But if you have the next day is not so hungry, then if you're listening, you eat less calories. So if you're looking at your week, your overall intake is probably less than if you're forcing yourself three meals a day when you really don't want them. Or for some people, when they start eating, they get more hungry. So there's this whole, you know, other piece that always makes me a little nervous about that. But, you know, again, breakfast is important. Why is breakfast important? Well, it's because you're what you're starting your day with. But the problem is if you think about American breakfast foods, they're horrible. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and not everybody loves eggs, right? So finding a protein breakfast in the morning is really hard. And especially if you're not, most people don't want a lot of protein in the morning. They're not, we're not raised that way. We're raised on cereal and, you know, breakfast danishes and different things, unless you had a great mom, but that great mom may have made French toast and pancakes and, you know, other things that weren't, weren't as healthy for us either. So, um, and again, you know, it, it, you just have to, again, meet people where they are and with their own obstacle, but yeah, listening to our body is super important. And that goes for pain too. Mm -hmm. So I, I am definitely someone that does not like eggs <laughs> and I don't know if it's like a food sensitivity, but I 
I just get sick when I eat it. So I can't do it. Um, but I, my boyfriend loves eggs and that's like his go-to meal. Um, but when you say like a protein breakfast, I guess this is for my personal note-taking. Cause I was like, I want to, I wanted to learn this. What do you recommend, um, to have in the morning that you think would be useful to start your day? So protein is so important at every meal. Protein is what keeps our blood sugar stable and helps, per, you know, prevent our, not prevent, um, eases maybe sugar and carbohydrate cravings. It also gives us mental capacity, right? So um, it also builds strong muscles, which we need for weight loss too. Um, it also helps with healing. So if you're going through surgery, protein, 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 right? But um, so I personally use a lot of protein shakes um, and you can use plant-based protein. You can use whey-based protein. Uh, I think the reason why it was just so hard for me to have that first meal. And so I, I rely still on, on protein shakes. Um, and that's an easy way for me to get 30 grams of protein and start my day. And then, cause I'm not super hungry, but I, you know, need to eat something at some point just to keep myself going. And I don't like to skip meals because that's not good for my body either. And so protein shakes generally are fortified in vitamins and minerals. And so it's probably one of the most processed foods I recommend, but it also, it helps lean on, you know, health, especially if you're not feeling hungry or, you know, say you're post-op, you know, if you had a big surgery, you have to eat something that has protein in it and maybe you can't tolerate a big meal. It's a great way to just supplement for sure. Yeah. And just speaking about nutrition, when it comes to whether it's weight loss or chronic pain or acute pain. Um, what, what do you recommend or what do you talk about with clients in terms of their nutrition and what types of nutrition they should be having? Um, cause I know, you know, they don't have to eat every single meal, but is there specific foods that you recommend taking out of their diet or adding into their diet? Mm, sure. Yeah. There's, uh, um, a lot of people talk about the anti-inflammatory type diets right now. That's, you know, kind of a big thing. And I mean, technically, excuse me, good nutrition is good nutrition, right? So again, we talked about, you know, things that are the way nature intended for us to eat them, right? So if they're not processed, if we can identify them as food, you know, that's what we want to do. And my favorite lesson is, you know, no ingredient label is going to be the best choice. The shorter the ingredient label, the better. And if you can pronounce all the words, you get extra credit because <laughs> if you can't pronounce it, you shouldn't eat it. I'm pretty certain. So if you look at, you know, and that's an easy way to just try to decide if it's something you should take out or leave in um, without overcomplicating nutrition. Um, I also think there's no bad vegetables. So I don't buy into the carrots and corn and green beans and canned versus frozen. And I, I think if I tell you, you can't eat carrots and I didn't ask you first, which vegetables you like, I might've just taken your only vegetable away from you. So I don't, I don't think there are bad ones. Um, then, so I would say definitely processed foods it's got to be one of the first things that come out and then anything with added sugar. Um, and I think wheat is really, um, as Americans, I think we're intolerant to the way our wheat has been genetically modified. And I don't think our bodies process it well. So if you look at anything that's bread or pasta related, the list of ingredients is long. And so you might be able to pronounce all the words, but it's still long. So if you go to the store and you buy um, fresh or frozen zucchini noodles, what's on the ingredient list going to look like? It's zucchini. And if you go to buy a packaged pasta, it's going to be longer than that. So I tell people just oh, don't overcomplicate it and go back to that easy lesson, you know, no ingredient label, shorter, better. Um, and I don't even have them read the label for protein. 
or carbohydrates or fats or anything. I just say, look at the label because it is the easiest way, I think, to help someone just make a quick decision because if we have to overcomplicate things, we don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I've heard the discussion too with like wheat bread versus like whole grain versus sourdough, like all those different types. And I'm always curious, I'm like, like the label thing, I've heard that before, but I'm like, is there even good bread or like good pasta for you? Because I feel like it's just, it's just inflammatory. It's just carbs. Yeah, I, I think there are some better bread choices. Most of them are like sprouted grain breads and things like that, that don't really taste like bread. I think personally, I think um, yeah. so. And again, I, I don't like to say take it completely out forever, right? So when we're first getting started and we're trying to get everything going, I do have them limit that because it is difficult but then you know and I teach them substitutes so like let's say the whole family is having spaghetti for dinner and it, and that goes a long way when you're trying to feed a family right and it's easy on a Monday night so as a mom the, I would still make pasta for the kids because they were growing and they needed those carbs to feel full and hungry so we would make a salad and we would make um uh, spaghetti and then I always kept um like cauliflower rice or zucchini noodles, like I said, frozen zucchini noodles. And so I would just warm those up for myself and slide them underneath my spaghetti sauce. And I sat down and ate with the kids just the same. But it's funny how they will um, switch over to eating the way you eat, no matter what, because they're like, oh, mom's eating it, it's gotta be good, right? So uh, we've made a lot of those changes using um, like roasted cauliflower under stroganoff sauces that you can make. I mean, there's just so many little things that you can teach someone as you're working through it, but ultimately, um, and you can still have things. And then we talk about moderation, of course, and how you do that. And one of the other tricks that I use is if you've had, um, so I always say no bread, no fruit and no potatoes for the first meal of the day, even if your first meal of the day is at 10 o'clock, because it starts the hunger hormones and it, and it's definitely brings your insulin level up and you're more likely to crash, which means you're more likely to eat early. So if you fill up on a lot of carbohydrates, even good carbohydrates, like fruit's a good carbohydrate, right? We use fruit more as dessert. Um, but if you're going to eat, like, let's say someone says, oh, I just have to have a tuna sandwich. I'm going to eat a tuna sandwich. So for dinner, I would say no, no carbs that look like carbs, right? So no bread, pasta, crackers, rice, that kind of thing for dinner. But if you're going to have a baked potato for dinner, that's fine. Just maybe omit the bread from the tuna sandwich and have more tuna, put it on a bed of lettuce, eat with tomatoes, pickles, whatever you like, and eat more of the good stuff. So I'm like writing, like I said, I was like, I am learning so much with this. I'm like writing a whole sticky note. <laughs> My diet. The first thing I, because of the whole egg thing, because I used to eat that a lot, is I try to do like granola with Greek yogurt with fruit. <laughs> I'm like, oh, maybe that's not the best idea. Um, I'm learning. <laughs> yeah, and not necessarily. I mean, it might be fine for you, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're using berries, they're lower in carbohydrate and high in antioxidants and you need a rainbow of color in your diet. And if you're using an, a natural granola that has, you know, very few ingredients, there are some out there now and you're using a Greek yogurt that's maybe plain and not sweetened. Um, it's lower in carbohydrate and added sugars, then it, it may be an okay meal for you. So again, being an individualized program, then it makes it a little easier for me to help you figure that out. And the other thing is, is if you're losing weight eating that, or you're feeling good eating that, then why would it, I wouldn't change it. True. I, granola was the hardest part. I forget which one I buy right now, but it took me a while because like you said, with the ingredient list and the label, I'm like, 
there's so much sugar and there's also just so much in here that I don't even know about I can't even pronounce so yeah thank you for sharing that thank you for the reminder for that yes yes I know and anything you can put between two pieces of bread you can eat with a fork yeah true or a spoon <laughs> so it's definitely optional um I wanted to talk about this uh, intervention or like this, uh, you, you sent me the 12 ways to reduce pain without medications list. And I'm going to be attaching this um, within the episode resources. So be on the lookout for this. It's also going to be in my link um, just within Instagram. Um, but yeah, it's 12 ways to reduce pain without medications. It's a holistic approach to pain management. Um, can you talk a little about this? Um for people, obviously, who can't see it right now. Um, what's, what is this? Uh, well, this was something I put together special for your listeners, because um, I think holistic healing is um, very important. And I think when you work with people who have chronic pain, I so often hear how, I guess, the desperation sometimes that they've tried everything, and they're not getting better. And so not that modern medicine has failed them, it's just not working, right? And so people will say to me, you know, I'm not ready for surgery. What else can I try, you know? And at first I used to be maybe a little shy about, about offering some of these holistic approaches. One, because I don't have a lot of great data to support all, all of the things that I'm recommending necessarily. I think we're getting there. Um, like I just read an article this morning in the Lancet about using CoQ10 for um, the long haul COVID patients, you know? So I think science is trying to find more natural approaches to our illnesses, especially ones we don't understand we're trying, but we like numbers and data. And, you know, we want to see it, that it really makes a difference because we don't want to recommend something that may cause more harm than good. Right. And so, you know, that we were always taught in medicine. I mean, I went to a great, I went to Gonzaga and got my nurse practitioners. I felt like I had great education, but we were always taught to be very careful about recommending things that didn't have any, um, you know, information behind them. So things like supplements were taught to tell people you can take them, but I don't know what to tell you about them. You just have to get them from a reputable source. Well, that's hard for us to tell patients that because they are trying to make themselves healthier, but we don't, can't support them. So I think that, you know, functional medicine and, and integrative medicine is definitely helping those of us who try to look at the whole person um, and see if we can't help them from another way. So I just put together the 12 things that if you asked me, what else can I do? Um, this would be the things I would offer to you. Uh, and a lot of centers now have a lot of these things all in one area, which is kind of cool. So um, if you go to like, I think there's a couple, like especially in this Seattle area, I know there's quite a few wellness centers that do a lot of these more holistic approach type things. And, and the thing I always tell people is do your own homework, make sure you can afford it and make sure it makes you feel better. If it makes you feel better, isn't that enough? I mean, that's the whole point. If you feel great when you get into an infrared sauna because it's warm and moist and you know and you relax for 30 minutes, um, then do it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking at all these and I'm like, oh, I love all of them. <laughs> yeah, the water as medicine. I know we talked about that earlier. I think that's helpful. Nutrition. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm gonna be attaching this because I think there's some pretty good descriptions within each of these. Um, but yeah, there's 12. Um, on here, there's mind-body therapies that I'm like really looking at right now. 
Um, but yeah, all of these are great recommendations if you haven't already tried them um, and found them to be useful. That's the thing that I um, am thinking about too, is, you know, it's to do no harm. Um, and I don't want to recommend something, uh, you know, that doesn't have the research and data behind it. But also, like you said, like, you know, this is, this is the client's experience. This isn't mine necessarily. So to, yeah, to be able to at least have these options available, I think it's going to be great. Yeah. And I think, you know, I would say that our bodies have an amazing ability to heal themselves if they get a little bit of help. And so when you think about like the, you know, pulse electromagnetic field and the hyperbaric oxygen chambers and things like that, where we don't have those things, but I have patients all the time that try this stuff that come back and tell me that it's made a world of difference. Um, and I think supplements, you know, like I, I think there's a lot of nutritional deficiencies that we could correct. Um, and, and then I know in the pain world, we're looking at those. We actually have a test now that is a urine test, which is not invasive at all, that, that looks for these certain, you know, oxidative stress markers and inflammation markers. And then the test actually recommends things like turmeric and, you know, NAD and ALA and all these different supplements, B vitamins, you know, and, and I've had patients come back and say, this is the first time I felt like my pain has been controlled in a long time. And if it's as simple as getting a B vitamin, by goodness, we should be looking at at this stuff so it would be easier yes absolutely so hopefully i'll find good value in it so yeah this is great thank you so much for making this and like i said i'm going to provide it to everyone so be on the lookout for it um just to kind of wrap up um was there anything else that you wanted to share either about your experience or how you help clients yeah i was in a car accident in 2018 and I was working in the interventional, you know, comprehensive spine clinic at the time. And I was probably in the best shape of my life. My weight had been stable. I had been doing really well. And that car accident rocked my world. And I think for the first time in my life, adult practicing, like practitioner life too, I finally really, I think, had a real good understanding of the emotional stress psychological issues that go along with things like accidents um, and how it impacts your weight and how much it impacts your ability to heal. And luckily for me, I work with a great set of providers that have, you know, I had this at my fingertips. And one of the things that made a huge difference for me was doing platelet-rich plasma injections um, to heal some damage in my wrist and shoulder. And then I just recently did that for some arthritis in my neck. And I am a firm believer, um, and again, data lacking in some areas, but it does make a huge difference. And so if we can give our body the ability to fight, um, to heal itself, those are the things I think that we should be doing because it does make a difference. And again, you're using your own body to heal yourself. And, you know, again, trying to avoid medicines. Now I don't, I'm not anti-medicine by any means. I prescribe pain medicine all the time or different therapy, you know, type medicines, because I believe there's value in those as well. But I think that, I think that we should have the option of both. And unfortunately, insurance companies don't provide coverage for most of these things. And it limits people's ability to be able to access that. And the same with weight loss medications. Most insurance companies don't pay for obesity medicine and it, it should because it's a chronic condition and it, we can make it better sometimes with medicine. So we just really need to work, I think from the legislative level and just try to get you know better coverage for this stuff so that we can get more people to feel better. Why do you think they don't cover it? Soapbox or, you know, <laughs> no, I, I you know, I, 
there's a lot of money in, in, in pharmaceutical companies. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I think partly too, our old thought on obesity or weight issues and chronic pain is that the patient needs to do more. Yeah. If the patient would just exercise, the patient would just eat better, cut back on calories. If the patient would just get out of bed and just exercise or, you know, deal with their own mental health issues, then we wouldn't have to provide these medicines. But what we're learning is it's not about lack of motivation. It's not about calories in, calories out. And it's not about the will to want to feel better in chronic pain. Because believe me, a lot of my patients have plenty of will for all of us. So. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for sharing all of this. Like I said, I really didn't know anything about chronic pain. I don't really see anything about chronic pain, um, whether it's in, you know, readings I do or the research I see or even just social media. So thank you for just being in this world and advocating for it and the people you work with. Yeah, absolutely. And you can um, follow me on Instagram too, if you're interested more about the chronic pain and, and weight, you know, health that we do, because I try to keep that pretty up to date with the latest research too, and share with people. Um, and that's just uh, Jen underscore Torok. Uh, you can find me there. Yay. Well, um, like I said, thank you for being on the show today. It was good to have you. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you to all the listeners today. Again, tuning in, listening. Um, I'm so glad that hopefully everyone's going to take something from this episode because I did. Like I said, I was taking notes basically the whole time. Um, but if you want to follow me um, or want to find this episode, I'm on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, my Instagram where I'm primarily on is at holistic underscore healing LC. Um, I have a website, holistichealinglc.com and a Gmail there. Um, I do wellness sessions, I do tarot readings, and I also just love having new guests on uh, the Holistic Healers podcast. So if you feel like joining, um, DM me, shoot me an email. Um, I'd love to talk to more people. So talk to you all soon. Thank you for being on the show today. Bye.